Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From, From page to screen. to screen. Hello, 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 and welcome to a somewhat solo podcast episode yet again. This is episode number four, the final episode in the October 2022 Grimfest set of interviews and, and coverage that I did. Uh, so hope you've enjoyed the other three. I was trying to think what to say there, how to begin these solo intros. So I am getting a little bit used to doing solo podcasts. I'm still not quite up to speed. Obviously, it's easier having a conversation when you're having a conversation with somebody rather than just walking around your room wearing a headset. But uh, hopefully you're hearing a slight improvement when I'm doing these solo segue things in between interviews. So enough waffling from me. Uh, Grimfest day four, October. I can't believe how many months it's been since Grimfest. Many, many months. I mean, they had an event in November and it's like well over... It's four months ago nearly, so obviously five months since October. Yes, there's your maths lesson for the day, peoples. So time flies. I do remember it like it was yesterday. Um, Even though it wasn't yesterday, it was last year. So what was my day four like on Grimfest? Well, obviously, like the first three days before that, it was amazing. Now, day four, I had one set of interviews planned just one set left so I had completed a whole bunch in the previous three days obviously day four I knew it was going to be my final day I knew that a few days after that I was going to be headed back to my night job which doesn't make me happy so I've got the whole holiday blues thing starting to kick in and uh, I've still obviously got the same worries that I previously did where have has the footage come out have the audio recordings come out I knew I hadn't made any mistakes with regarding the conversations that I'd had with people because if you're having a conversation and you make a mistake you're there when you make the mistake so you're perfectly aware of it all the interviews as far as I'm concerned had gone very very well and I just had one set left now the set of interviews that I had left were with uh, with three of the members of the crew from the film Feed Me now Feed Me is an amazing film which I have since seen I absolutely loved it. It's based on the true case of uh, the... Do you remember him? I mean, the German cannibal who advertised because he wanted to eat somebody and somebody applied to take up the position. Feed Me is this bonkers film that's very loosely based. I'm hoping it's very loosely based on that case. I'd highly recommend that. Definitely comedy horror, but, but you will love it. So I would check out Feed Me where you can. Now, I'd seen the Feed Me people wandering around doing their, their media walls and stuff like that, and I'd sort of said hi, and so they, they knew who I was. I knew who there was, who they were. Uh, also, to be fair, a lot of people at Grimfest just saw me as the guy just wandering around with a huge camera set up just filming stuff. So I don't know whether they actually knew who I was. They just knew that I was the camera guy wandering around filming stuff, so therefore 
it must be okay because the Grimfest people don't seem to be throwing him out of the building. So I think that's how much people knew who I was. But I'd, I'd quickly introduce myself uh, with a hi. <laughs> Looking forward to watching your film. And we're having a chat later, sort of ways. Uh, so I had one set of interviews. Now, th this is where it gets tricky. Is uh, this, this, this set of interview? There, the set of interviews, he says, fluffing it. Do you remember when I said solo ones were going well? Yeah, karma's just kicked me up the arse, hasn't it, really? So I had one set of interviews left, and it was upstairs in the Lion's Den pub. So I was very familiar with the settings. Now, I was going to be speaking to three people, I believe. Uh, and this is where I believe. So you're going to go, why haven't you prepared? Why didn't you prepare? You should know who you're speaking to. I did. I had it all on my little piece of paper. And I knew who I was going to be speaking to. And it was all fine. But <laughs> and then there were a couple of last minute changes. One of them was a last minute change. One of them was literally like a five second change. And I will get into why that is. Now, I, I love last minute changes genuinely because it teaches you to think on your feet. It teaches you to try and come up with a solution as fast as possible and keeps your brain alive just a zillion times more than my, um, my night job does. So, so don't take the, uh, the last minute changes or, oh my God, things have, the goalposts have been moved as any form of negativity. It isn't, I love thinking like that. So the, uh, the Feed Me interviews, right? So as far as I knew, I was going to be sitting down with Adam and Richard, who were the writer-directors of the film. I was going to be sitting down with Neil Ward, who plays Lionel. So he is the, the cannibal figure in the movie. And so I, I sort of set out my, my stall, so to speak. So, right. so obviously, because all the interviews are upstairs in the Lion's Den pub, and you kind of have the whole floor to do what you want. So there isn't like a set table where you do your interviews. There isn't like set chairs. You could just move it around if you want, you know, wherever you want to. And so if you look at a lot of the interviews that I've done, you could see them all on the YouTube channel, uh, all the ones that came out in focus, that is. Sorry, Moon Garden. And, uh, and, um, and Megalomaniac, <laughs> forgot the name. Uh, but they didn't come out. So you, I wanted to make them all look a little bit different. Not too different, but different enough. And so I would just sometimes use a different table, sometimes put the chairs in a different place, sometimes position the camera in a different place. Now, something usually that goes quite well. However, from experience, it hasn't always gone very well, but enough about that. Um, <laughs> that's why not all the interviews are online. So I'd, I'd set out the, the table. And obviously, if you're having a conversation with one person, it's quite easy, isn't it? You just sit next to the person or facing the person. And then you put the camera on. It's a single shot. And you go, fantastic. That's an easy one to capture. It's easy. We've all seen it on TV with two people having a conversation. It's fine. Then when you've got two people being interviewed, then it's a little bit different because you can't really sit next to them as easy so therefore you're usually facing them so your camera goes in a different position if you've got three people that you're interviewing it's different again because you don't want to sit at one side so you've got all this stuff to think of but also you've got to think of it very quickly 
because you I didn't have the luxury of being able to set up like an hour before because I was busy rushing around filming stuff again I'm fine with that because I like being able to think on my feet and uh, and just rush around and, and do stuff I you know I highly recommend doing it it definitely works for me so I, I'd set the three chairs out and it was uh, then I was informed they will be here in a few minutes it's fine brilliant okay now the interviews I all had were about 15 minutes long so that's fine so you get it into your head you go well if I've got one person and it's 15 minutes then that's probably maybe four or five questions give or take obviously it depends how long the answers are but that's you that's the sort of ballpark figure if you've got two people and you've got 15 minutes then you go, okay, well, that's obviously going to be less questions because again, double the answers. So we'll probably go for maybe three questions for 15 minutes. Now, three people, obviously you've got three amounts, unless you're just firing a question at one specific person. But if you've got three people there for 15 minutes, you kind of want to make sure everybody gets an answer in. Otherwise, somebody's going to be sat there for no reason whatsoever. And that's very rude. Um, so you've, you've got triple the answers, so you go, right, less questions. Okay. So maybe four or five minutes before the interviews were due to take place. So, you know, Richard, Adam and uh, Neil hadn't shown up yet. So I was all set up in place. I had the chairs positioned out. I'd worked out my camera angle brilliant it's fine i know what i'm doing i'm just waiting around for them to show up so i can do their thing i was informed that they had a media wall interview right after my interview which is fine but it will probably take them three four minutes to get from my interview to the media wall and the media wall one for, for some reason had to start exactly on time for whatever the time was. I think it was like half past four or something like that. I, don't, I can't remember what time it was, but it had to start at a specific time. So my 10 minutes, my 15 minute interview slot was shrunk down to 10 minutes. And I do remember somebody saying, is that a problem? I'm like, no, no, it's fine. And I'm a firm believer in whatever I've got, I'll make it work. Right. So if I've got half an hour, I'll make it work. If I've got, 15 minutes, I'll make that work. If I've got 10 minutes, I'll make that work. If I've got two minutes, I'll make that work too. Because what are you going to do? Go, no, I demand 15 minutes. So my my 15 minutes got shrunk down to 10 minutes. And and so the three chairs were all set out. So you go, okay, so I'm going to recalculate all my questions now because I've got three people. I've just lost uh, like 33% of my running time. Another math lesson for you there. And, uh, and then I've got to make sure I wrap up really quick and you know, get these people on the way so they can go do a media wall thing. But also, I was filming the media wall stuff as well. Not fully, but I was sort of assisting and capturing bits and pieces. So, in comes Adam. In comes Richard. And in comes Neil. And in comes Christopher Mulvin, who's in the film. And in comes Samantha Loxley, who was also in the film. And, uh, and in, in comes Nadia Lamin, who's also in the film. It's like, is it more than three people? Oh, no. So to quickly scurry around, find some more chairs. 
Now, my camera angle was all set up to capture me and three people, uh, not six. <laughs> so it's like, okay, now bearing in mind that I haven't got enough time to sort of go, hmm, let me rethink this. How can I do it? It's a case of, okay, they're here. I need to grab some more chairs. I'll just extend the, the, the row of three out to six. And then I should be okay sitting in the same place. And then I've got to obviously do less questions because I've got double the amount of people that I'd planned for and five minutes less to do it in. So remember when I've said uh, thinking on your feet? Oh my God, did I have to think on my feet on that one? Now, everything went well. And I would like to say I did hit the, the 10 minute mark. Well, to be fair, it turned out to be 12 minutes. But that ain't bad. Two minutes over. And yes, they did get to the media wall on time. So that was perfect. But I, I think if you listen to this conversation, there are two things that I don't really do. One of them is address anybody by name. Because it really confused me when you're used to you thinking there's going to be three people in and six people are there. You're like, oh, and I didn't want to, the worst thing I ever, I don't ever want to get somebody's name wrong because you're never going to live that shit down, are you? So I didn't address anybody by name. Uh, the questions, I think, did I just get like one or two questions? I think one or two at the most I got, but it worked. And it was my final interview of the day. And it's weird. Once you've done four days worth of interviews, you, you sort of think, I mean, obviously you've got a sense of achievement because you've managed to do them all. But then you, you end up with, uh, what next? What am I going to do next? Okay, I've done all my things. As far as I know, it's all gone pretty well. What now? So I ended up with a, a huge feeling of that. Uh, the video for this interview is actually on the From Page to Screen YouTube channel. Uh, the, the video came out okay. The audio came out okay. The one glitch that did happen was because it had gone from three people to six people, is I ended up inadvertently sitting in front of the camera lens, blocking out one of one of the actresses. Now, I didn't realise that because obviously I was sat down. It looked all fine when I looked through the lens. But then when I went and sat down, I was kind of blocking somebody out partially. But, uh, but yeah, no, those are the things. And that's what happens when you don't have a camera assistant who can tell you to move. There was just me. But it all came out well. It worked. So what you're going to hear now is the full 12-minute uh, Feed Me conversation. You've actually had a 14-minute introduction to that 12-minute conversation, but I do hope you enjoy it. started recording already today. Yeah. They don't fit well, I think we've got about 10 minutes, so we're going to do a wall at 10 parts. I'll write it up in case I do like a really quick question. Everybody gets, gets the same a bit. It sounds good. I mean, if it's small, it's pretty good. Hello. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm tired. Well, I don't know. 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 I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I I
Ah, eu tava rodando. Tudo bem, ah, não. Não, 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 não. Não,
just sort of live it up. And no say, yeah, yeah, just live it up after all of that hard work. And especially after COVID. Exactly that, yeah. And uh, like getting people to actually come to these places as well. People are getting all of this amazing feedback as well. So, yeah. This is my first in-person event since COVID. So the previous two years, oh, nice. I've been doing virtual stuff, which is nice because we do it from home, but it's not. I don't get this. I don't get the, the noise of the audience or the, the huge screen and stuff. So it's, it's very special to see a film like this. Mm -hmm. um, Call your activists. Favorite memories? What were you? I think looking back in a few years, I think one thing that will stick with me is that we are proud of the fact that we stuck to our guns and to our heart on what the film should be, rather than kind of playing it safe. And this is we've been told by many people. You know, sometimes the detriment that this is not a safe film by any means, but I think that's the beauty of it, and that's what I'm really proud of. So many safe films, yeah. And it's nice. I heard you say on the podcast, I'm like, fuck it, I'm going to do it, you know, the way that I want to do it. And the audience will know that and will appreciate it so much more. So thank you on behalf of everybody so much. And that seems to be the feedback that we're getting as well, just that it's not a safe film like this. <laughs> That's, that's something that I, that's the, the side I, do. I prefer to, to have a, a narrow audience adore what you've done because you've been true and it's just different rather than kind of ticking boxes and mm. getting more prestige because it's what everyone expects. Like sales agents will not the lines, change those students. Yeah, like, we're not that like, like, Do it the way we all want to do it and then the audience will find it on. Which is definitely seems to be doing. Uh, um, to be honest, man, I, I can't, couldn't put it better than Reg. It's the same thing. You steal his answer. <laughs> we are one brain. Are. I'd like to, to look back in 20 years or 25 years or however long and just go, that was where it really begun for us as a, as a writer-director duo. You know, that's the film where we decided, fuck it, this is what we're going to do. We don't care what anyone else thinks. And that's where we wore our heart on our sleeves as, as filmmakers and, and did something true to us. And coincidentally or, or luckily, whatever the word is, where it kind of all kicked off as well. You know, I feel like this is this is the start of everything for not only us as a duo, but for everyone involved, the cast and the rest of the crew. Like, this is where it really begins. And it's because we took that mindset from the very, very get-go of, let's do what we want to do. You know, and that's, that's yeah. That'll stay with me. Forever! <laughs> 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 can you beat any of these organizers? So, they're not the same. I don't know, I wanted that. I think that we were doing this the other day in LA, and everyone's answer oh, was the answer. Right. I tried to make a new one, and then the next person said that one, and I was like, shit, with that. <laughs> so, I think the, the biggest thing is that in 25 years, and looking back on the theme, I'll be actually able to pinpoint where my career went downhill. Uh, <laughs> um, no, that's a complete lie. It's, it's, there's been a couple of comments about like career making or breaking and, and I think the one thing for me is that I was given the opportunity by Richard to, to play such an absolute bonkers character and I think any actor that would have been handed the script with a character like Lionel Flack it's just someone that can really take the town get their teeth into it and just run with it uh, so yeah I mean I'm very proud of of him, and I'm also very proud of what the guy shaped Lionel into for the film because he, I, I don't, even though I hate watching myself back, I've not seen anything that's 
quite as bonkers, and I usually hate my work, so it's the first piece of work that I absolutely adore. Uh, character and then it fitting into a film with these guys is, is it's just been incredible. But again, it, it was a grueling shoot and uh, there's a lot of ups and downs, maybe downs just because of the, the time schedule and, and, and the, the content. But yeah, it was uh, one of the most amazing times of my life working with everybody so closely. Like I say, we're all family and we all, uh, we all reap the benefits and the not so beneficial things, which hopefully there's not many of them. but yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> um, no, I think uh, just like you did it, like looking back, you know, because there's so many people who talk about making a film, um, they write it even, uh, you know, and it's like having that, you know, looking back and going, oh, we had like the strength to actually start to make something. Um, and I think that's a really wonderful moment for the people who drove this project forwards. Um, and obviously, like the connections that you make on set and off set, and like just being proud of you actually did something. So, yeah. A whole bunch of good answers. Good answers, though. But I'm really look, I, would have, I would have obviously asked you more specific questions, not too much about the, the, the details in the film. Watch it, yeah, because I'm following you over to the media wall and then heading into the screening and watching what sounds to be a bonkers, fun, crazy. I'm going to be watching for that shot that you mentioned. <laughs> you'll see it, you'll see it. It's fun with that, which I was just saying that, like, that we had so much fun that there's stuff coming out that there's a shot that you can literally see my laugh. <laughs> but it is nice to sort of see the whole community aspect of the filmmakers and stuff. Obviously on set it's it's like a close knit family, but mm. you're off set now and you're still one you know, big family as well. And uh, I will be you doing a signing after this? Yeah. Oh, I'll, yeah, too, I'll be there is it? We'll also oh. uh, put it for the next time. You, I think you guys have got to rush off to media one now. Sure. Okay. Right. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you so much. Thank you. 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 you. Thank 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 you. Firstly, I hope you enjoyed the Grimfest series of interviews. Uh, I certainly enjoyed doing I Can't Thank Grimfest enough for all the stuff they do. But more than that, for all the stuff they let me do. Uh, my original plan, and it kind of still is, but, you know, I'm a little bit behind schedule, shall we say, is my original plan for the Grimfest stuff, I shall say, is was for me to do like a follow-up to the Experience in Comic-Con documentary that I've done, which is also on the Front Page of Screen YouTube channel. I would appreciate a subscription to that or whatever. Just check it out. Um, I, it's, I love making that. It's great. And I always wanted to do a follow-up. I very nearly did an Experience in Fright Fest one, but then this little thing called COVID-19 came out and uh, sort of shut the planet down. So who knows whether Experience in Fright Fest may happen. I hope so, one day. But my plan was to do an experience in Grimfest. Um, how that would work was a different matter. But I wanted to shoot as much as possible 
and then turn it into an experience in Grimfest sort of documentary type thing, kind of like the experience in Comic-Con one. And that is still my plan. I do have a stupid amount of footage. I think I shot about, I think about seven or eight hours worth. So if I can't turn that into a, a 90 minute documentary or even a 20 minute short film, then uh, then I'm doing something wrong. But my plans are still to do that. It just, anybody who's done video editing, certainly on that amount of footage, knows it takes a long time. And then what we're doing, all the podcasts and life in general and my four nights a week night job uh, and a huge to-do list, then, you know, time is not my friend. But I do plan to still do the experience in Grimfest. I, I'm, I'm aiming, don't hold me to this because it's a podcast, it's not a court of law, is to try and get that done in the run-up to Grimfest 2023. Fingers crossed there is a Grimfest 2023. I really hope there is, because uh, and I'm hoping I'll be there as well. Um, but that's my plan, because it will be a nice little advert for Grimfest. The same as some of these podcast episodes. I mean, I've been releasing these four episodes over the past few weeks. I haven't really publicised them all, because I didn't want to publicise them all until they were all done. Obviously, people have been listening to them if they're subscribed to the podcast feed. But I haven't been tweeting them more facebooking them or anything like that but i will do once these four episodes are completed i'm not going to be mean and edit them all together into one huge episode because i don't expect anybody to listen to like a a four-hour podcast episode although maybe you want to i don't know um so yes so that's my plan with the grimfest experience in grimfest so day four was coming to an end i had done all my interviews Everything had done. I mean, it was a few more movies to, to try and check out. Spoiler, didn't manage to check any out. But, yeah, <sighs> the, the thing when you're running around like a maniac. Um, but, yes, so there was one thing left at the end of Grimfest, which I was very, very excited about. Now, I'd already, and you've already listened to, hopefully, the conversation I had with actor and filmmaker AJ Bowen. AJ's great he was on twitter now i think he's disappeared again so i'm hoping he does pop up at some point but uh aj you're awesome now aj was gonna be and he did he had planned a talk with simeon halligan uh they were just gonna sit on a stage upstairs in the lion's den pub and have a conversation and just simeon was going to talk to aj about his career so let's go through a lot of your movies and let's just, you know, not so much a QA, and a although to be fair, it was Simeon asking the questions and AJ answering them. So it was a Q&A in that regard. And then I think there was also going to be some audience questions near the end as well. Now, I love stuff like this. I love talks, uh, which is why I was crazily excited for Grimfest November. But you'll get more of that later on. And so I asked Simeon, I'm like, can I film that? Because that's the thing, it's like, you, you know, you can film Q&As because they're like 10 minutes at the end of a, a movie. I can film my interviews because it's me holding the interviews and it's for my own channels and stuff as well. But when it's something a bit more feature length, shall we say, it's like, am I allowed to film that? Because that would be amazing. So I, I had a chat with Simeon and he was like, yeah, just film it. I'm like, I'll get you copies of the footage and I'll get you this, I'll get you that. It's, you know, I'm... 
I'm a firm believer in anything I've shot. If Grimfest want copies of it, they can they can have it. Uh, but you know, as long as they let me use it too. Um, and so I was very excited about shooting. Not like a 10, 15 minute, 20 minute conversation between Simeon and AJ. But this was going to be feature length, like an hour, an hour and a half, something like that. Oh my God, this would be amazing. Now nobody else was filming this, which gets me even more excited because I'm the one going to be filming it. And because it was just two people on stage, I say just, because it's two people on stage, it's, it's relatively easy to film. You just, you know, you know where they're going to be sitting you can capture it. So there's no funky editing. There's no swooping camera moves. And more to the point, there's me not running around like a maniac. So that's amazing. I've just got to be there, make sure the camera works and make sure it captures the sound and the audio. So, uh, spoiler, (laughs) it ended up being an hour and 22 minutes, I believe, this conversation. And it was fascinating. So we, we got in there and I worked out where my camera would be. Uh, we, we, we did, I say we, because it was my suggestion. There was some lighting on the stage and the lighting wasn't very good. So somebody from the Lions Den came upstairs and we were like, can you play with the lighting? Is there any different colours that you could change with? And they flipped through the sequence of lights that they could use. And one of them was like this pinky sort of purple type light. And I'm like, that one because that will look amazing on a camera. It did. It looks very, very cool on a camera. I mean, you're listening to the interview on the audio. You don't give a shit about lights. They could be sitting in the dark for all you know, but trust me, go onto the YouTube channel, look at the interview. It looks very cool. Very happy with the lighting. I was a little bit concerned about the amount of space on my memory card, uh, because I think as I explained in previous sort of uh, intros, segues, whatever you want to call these things, my memory card will hold about an hour and 24 minutes shooting at 4K. And I always shoot in 4K and then you can downgrade it then to whatever. But you, obviously it's not easy to upgrade uh, on, a, on a PC or whatever. But downgrading you can very easily do. So I would, and I figured, you know what, I'm never going to shoot anything that's longer than an hour and 24 minutes. Very nearly did. Very nearly did. But they finished their conversation without me sort of waving my arms going, for the love of God, I have got like two minutes left on this memory card. Please stop talking. No, they naturally stopped at one hour and 22 minutes. So in a single take, I captured the whole lot. And uh, I think what you're about to hear, I think with the audio, whilst the camera does capture the audio pretty well, I had run up on stage before they started talking and put my little uh, Tascam audio recorder between the chairs and turned it up. So I think I ended up using what you're about to hear now is the audio from that because that was easier to slightly boost and uh, and get a slightly better recording playback than from the camera. Because with the camera, I was probably, geez, like 50 feet back. And the camera's good, but if you've got two people just having a conversation on stage... 50 feet away and the audio comes in quite low. But, uh, but yeah, the audio went right because I had a little digital recorder. So I really hope you enjoyed the conversation between Simeon Halligan and AJ Bowen. Uh, I am there in spirit. I'm obviously not talking or having any sort of interview. So this is the one where I'm not really a part of it other than I was fortunate enough to be able 
to capture it. So enjoy, and uh, once again, thank you very much, Grimfest. You're all amazing. This is very formal. Well, I was about to say this is going to be very informal. It's been very informal chat, so feel free to ask questions. Put your hand up if you want to ask anything throughout the talk. Please do. What Simeon's saying is he didn't prepare any questions. That's exactly what I'm saying. So, thank AJ, thank you so much for being with us. Of course. I have here... You're not going to, like, an IMDb thing, are you? No, I've, but, I've just, but I do have a list okay. of movies that start... That I'm in? No. I don't think you're in any of these. I, I like Patriot Games. <laughs> I have got down here that the first movie you were in, but correct me if I'm wrong, was Last Goodbye. That's correct. Wait, you know, like the first movie that, that got distribution or came out? That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did, did you do stuff before that? Yeah, so that, that was Jacob's, um, who directed the movie that we have here. Um, that was his first, I guess we'd say grown-up <coughs> movie, because... Because we made, I think, three before then. So the director of this film... Uh, so features. Yeah, because we were really pretentious and arrogant in college, and so we just thought, oh, it seems like an easy thing to do, let's do it. So we did it, and clearly none of those ever came out. Um, but we were doing that. Um, we part of A big part of how I ended up getting to have what a career, if you call it that, um, is that I ended up at the University of Georgia... Um, and I say ended up there because it wasn't my it wasn't my first or second or third choice. I actually went to college to be a professional tuba player. Um, <laughs> okay. So I was on that track, um, and I was. Are you, are you, do you still play the tuba? Fuck no. Um, <laughs> no, no, I don't. Um, Could we do a movie where you play the tuba? I've been asked that before, and my answer is fuck no. Um, <laughs> So I, I, um, I, it was just was I fell into that because of where I grew up, um, the suburbs of Atlanta. Um, the high school that I went to ended up being I didn't even know this was a thing, but I found out pretty quickly that that high school was the best band in the United States, and it was very serious. Um, the symphonic band and the marching band was not like everybody else's experience is doing that. It was it was militaristic and it was very serious, and it was I never had a summer break because we were practicing 12 hours a day every day in the summer, seven days a week um, for all of high school. And I had had the dream of being an actor um, since I was a kid. And, um, and I didn't think that that was something I could do. Um, I grew up in a very blue-collar family. My dad was a Marine and then became a truck driver. And my mom um, worked at Walmart. So it was like it, we, it, having food on the table was really a thing. So the idea of being... Um, in something creative sounded crazy to me and we ended up at this place at this area that my, my parents moved to just so that I could have a good edu public education and um, and that was the band so I looked up one day and I was in like the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra and I was the substitute tubist for the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and I was like 15 and um, it was wild and the Olympics came through Atlanta during that time so I got to record with a lot of film composers I, I recorded with John Williams I recorded wow. with Michael Kamen um, and I played with like the Australian Symphony, and and the they, uh, John Williams composed a new theme for the one. It was the Centennial Olympics, so he composed 
um, a new theme for the Olympics, and I got to record that. Um, and but the coolest part was getting to be inside a stadium with boys to men and glorious <laughs> uh, right behind me. Um, that got done, and I ended up at Indiana University. And I is that where you started acting? Or um, I had started before then. So the band that I was in was so serious. Um, and I ended up being band president, which is totally braggable. Um, <laughs> I was the president of that band, so that was like the, the track that I was on, and it sort of pushed this dream that I had that I thought other people do, specifically wealthy people do, um, to the side. And I got to Indiana, um, which is a premier school for, for music, specifically brass um, instrumentation, and I was the only kid there that didn't have a recording contract. And I didn't even know that you could have a recording contract to play the tuba, but back then you could, and I was the only one that didn't have one. Um, and I also was really shitty at it compared to those those people. So I was like, I, and I wasn't having any fun doing it anymore either. And I had friends that had decided to do theater that had gone to like Boston University or NYU or other places. And whenever I would catch up with them, they were talking about how amazing their life was. And... Um, and I just knew that it wasn't for me, so I dropped all my classes for that. And I decided I was going to try to do theater there because Kevin Klein went there. And, um, and where my dorm was was right beside the theater. So I spent all day, once I had no classes, basically just sitting in the theater, like looking around, like, oh my God, this is amazing. And um, they informed me, and my scholarship was for tuba performance and told me to promptly fuck off. So <laughs> I left. Um, and I ended up back in Georgia. Uh, where I grew up, and they had a scholarship um, called the Hope Scholarship, and that's why I ended up at Georgia with my friend Drew. Um, and all of us, um, it's a really long-winded story, but a lot of us ended up there instead of going other places due to circumstance, because it wasn't known. I say ended up there because it, it's a really good school, but it wasn't known for theater or for film. And in fact, there wasn't even a film department. But you were there, Drew was there, Jacob was there. So was Scott, who was in the movie. Um, if it did any? Do you guys see the movie yesterday? yesterday? So he was in that. Um, he was. He and I went to high school together, and um, I started at the end of high school doing theater for fun because I had friends in the theater program, and that created huge problems because of the time and, and everything. So it was already there was the itch was already there. And so when I ended up at Georgia, I found that there were a lot of other people that ended up there because they didn't have the money to go other places. Um, and so but it sounds like it was a bit of a melting pot of it talent. It was, and there was not a, a conservatory program or a BFA program or anything like that. There was a journalism school that was like one of the best in the in the states, and they had all of this film equipment. And then there were all of us theater kids, and there were no rules for us. So I always say that like. It was fundamental in me becoming an independent filmmaker because, um, like, for example, this one on, on, on Night Sky, the one that's here, I'm credited as a co-writer on it. Um, but I've been writing since I was four. And when we were at Georgia... How was that writing? It's about the same. <laughs> <laughs> about the same quality. Uh, when I was at Georgia, um, we, had, we were able to steal all of this film equipment and check it out. And there were no rules. There was no one telling us, you know... How to do anything, but it also meant that there was no one telling us how not to do things. So, you know, we were sort of doing this similar stuff to like Rodriguez, you know, like learning that you can yeah, use, yeah, you yeah. can have a dolly with a skateboard, yeah, you know, or like figuring out how to cut stuff um, on two VCRs, 
yes. like deck to yeah, deck. Yeah. That's how we were, we're learning how to edit. When I say we, I mean all of us. Um, I was definitely wanting to be in front of camera. Like since I, as, as long as I could remember, I wanted to act and perform. Um, and I did when I was younger. Um, but when we got to school, there were some of us that definitely wanted to compose. There were people that wanted to be directors. So we all learned how to haul cable. We all learned how to do sound. We all learned how to edit. We, we understood the inside and out of camera stuff. So for me as an actor, music was so rigid um, and there were so many rules um, and I got hung up on that because in technical aspects of something like tuba performance or any wind instrument, there's an aperture and an embouchure and it's how your mouth is shaped. And I did all that shit wrong, but I played really well. And I listened to the people that... Is that the same approach you might have taken to your acting? Or Why are you laughing and looking away? I'm not. I'm not saying anything. This is going, this is going so poorly. <laughs> I, swore, I, I swore I was going to do the opposite, basically. So like, I got burned out on music because I couldn't do it the way they told me to. I could only do it the way that I could. And I did it really well. And when I tried to do it their way, it was fucked up. And so I decided immediately with acting that I was different than if, if I was being honest I was like I'm very different than the actors that I'm around because they seem to be believing this imaginary shit and I don't so like we would stand there and like do the trust thing like move our hands in unison and I was like what the fuck are we doing and, <laughs> and no one was no one was saying back to me no one was whispering to me like what the fuck are we doing so I thought you know I was like they drank the Kool-Aid and I'm, they're mentally ill <laughs> so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to argue with them I'm just going to fake it and I'm going to just do it my own and I figure it out so that in, with my interest in the technical aspects of filmmaking um, made me a very different type of actor and my interest behind camera because I think it's just as important um, and I think every job on a film set is just as important and, and I've consistently said that and felt that like I was when I, we were on House of the Devil, and I, I think I was telling Rachel, um, I was telling somebody, we were on House of the Devil, and, and I have a big hand cannon, and I shoot Greta Gerwig in the face, spoiler alert. Um, and I shoot, I blow her brains out. And um, the first take that we do it, the prop master comes over who's like 18, and he asks me if I've, if I've ever fired a gun. And I was like, yeah, of course, I grew up in Georgia, my dad's a Marine, I fired a lot of guns. And, um, and he was like, but have you ever fired this one? And I was like, no, it's a prop gun. And he said, okay, because you shot it like this, and that size of a gun, it would be more like this. And one of the producers saw him do this and came over and flipped out on him and was like, you can't talk to the actors. And um, if he hadn't told me that, it would have been fucked up in the movie. I would have just been like, you know, or like turned the gun sideways or done some dumb shit. And, um, and, so like I went up and I thanked him and, and on all the sets that I work on, like I do not believe in in a division of power. I, be, I believe in a division of of job roles. But you know, if a PA sees me doing something fucked up, they need to tell me because I can't get that back. You know, um, and I feel that way about. I think that film is the most pure art form for me because the collaborative process of it. Otherwise, I could be a painter. Or we could just do a play, and and that's one of the things that I that I really love about it is that everybody works on this thing, this unified thing, and at the end of it, we have basically a journal or a photo album of that time in our life working on this together. And the best part of it 
is that when we give that to somebody, they get to have their own personal experience with it. And sometimes there's a group of us together and have that experience at the same time. And, you you know, said uh, after the screening that uh, the last part of the writing process is the moment when the film is presented to the audience because they kind of bring their own yeah. kind of uh, emotions, feelings towards the film. Yeah, I couldn't possibly write in you know, your life experiences into it. And so we, a lot of times we talk about that stuff in a negative light, triggering. Um, and it is a lot of the time. But there's also things that will remind you. So like I, I tripped out because I was sitting there last night watching it and I don't normally do that at festivals because as an as the type of actor I am, I'm always involved in the edit. So I've seen that movie four hundred times. Yeah, yeah. You know, and so at this point it's kind of boring. And, <laughs> and so I don't normally but I wanted to and, and I was watching it and um and I had like an emotional experience with it. You know, like I saw me up there and it reminded me of my dad and it reminded me, you know, like this was a dream that I had when I was five years old that I didn't think I could ever do. And somehow a kid from Marietta, Georgia is in Manchester for two years in a row um, <laughs> because I had a dream in the 80s and, and, and had a lot of goodwill and a lot of good fortune and a lot of luck with it. And so that's not lost on me, and it pisses me off when, when it is lost on people when, um, because it's such a privilege and it's such a gift, but there's that part. I haven't been, I have an eight-year-old at home, and so that plus COVID, I haven't really been to the theater much in the past few years. And so going into a theater and seeing people having an experience together that we can then talk about afterwards yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. is everything to me because yeah. there's very few types of art that you get to have that experience with. Well, also often with film, you're... Um you don't get to see the audience reaction very often, particularly if it's a film that goes straight onto, you know, everything's going onto Shudder or if it's a genre of Shudder or platforms these days. So yeah. it's hard to kind of get that interaction with an audience or see how people are receiving the film. Or to, or to have, like, we, I'm not trying to harp at it, but there's, like, as a society, we're not real big these days on having our minds changed. And I think that film is movies, TV that type of storytelling are one of those places where we still can you know like I can have my perspective changed and, yeah. and I want to be open to that you know, yeah. especially as a dad or just as a person alive right now it's like I want to be able to I want to be able to have the grace to be wrong about something and then say I was wrong and learn from it and that happens through communication with each other and that happens through finding somebody else's perspective you know that's how growth happens and so um, getting to discuss things through art, I think, just breaks down a lot of barriers that wouldn't exist otherwise. Which is not at all answers to the question about Jacob Gentry. We all went to the University of Georgia together. We all made movies there together, and we made one for fifty thousand dollars in nine days about seventeen years ago. What was that called? The Signal. Yes. <coughs> yes. I was going to come to the Signal. Can we, should we talk about Creepshow Three first? Or not? that means awesome. Have you got anything to say about that? I like how you like, turned your shoulder like it was going to be offensive. I'm, not gonna, no, no, I'm, no. I'm proud of that. I've got a long list. I'm, I'm trying to get you. I'm going to try and get you to say at least a few words about every film I've got on this list. And there's a lot of films because you've done awesome a lot craft, of movies. Awesome craft services. <laughs> okay. So Creepshow Three was. I've lived in LA for three months, and I moved out there. My wife and I moved out there um, with our dog, and, and literally two hundred dollars. Neither of us had jobs, and it was like. Um, if I don't go to L.A. and just try, 
at least um, at least if we go out there and try and I, and I inevitably fail when I have a midlife crisis it won't have the part <laughs> about how I didn't try and so that really was it we were planning on going out for one year um, and figuring out that no I'm, I'm going to just be a bartender and um, and that was going to be that um, and we got out there and like I didn't have I didn't know anybody didn't have any money or infrastructure so there was a, a publication called Backstage West and you could buy it for like a dollar and I would go to a coffee shop buy that and I would read in the back were open auditions and I went to an open audition for a theater company and I booked it and when we were doing this we were doing a, we were doing a really terrible job adapting this Tom Stoppard play and um, one of the guys that was in it was a casting director and asked me if I wanted to audition for a movie and I was like yeah that's why I came to Los Angeles um, so I auditioned and it was really strange there was no title for what it was um, I didn't understand what was going on and then I got a call back and I'm terrible at auditioning um, I've never Creepshow 3 is the only job I've ever booked from an audition Okay. seriously the only job I've ever gotten so I guess the only job I've ever earned <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not ashamed of it. Um, so, but, this, but the callbacks, I was, at the time, I was the only guy in Los Angeles with a beard. I had long hair and a beard. And at the callbacks, they found the five other guys that had beards in L.A. And so we were all standing there. And, and I just started to look around. And I was like, this feels like an anthology because there's a group of people that look the same over here. And then in this other room, there's a group of people that look the same because I only had these one parts. And I was like why the fuck is this guy talks in the movie I, I have a relationship with a radio um, take that as you will and, um, <laughs> and so I was confused about like why is this guy talking to a radio why is the radio talking to him why is he talking to the radio and um, and I was driving away from it my second callback and that guy called me and was like do you want to be in a movie and I was like I hope so yeah and um, he told me congrats you're in Creepshow 3 and I was like what um, because and I've said it if, if anyone has heard me or seen me talk in interviews before, I'm not somebody that happened into horror. Like yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. yeah. So for me, it, horror is life, and it always has been. And so there's other things that I'm interested in doing, but it's home for me. It's home base. Um, it's what made me love cinema at that age it was forbidden I grew up in a religious household and so I wasn't allowed to watch it so I had to go to friends houses um, to sneak it That's, I saw Halloween at a friend's house when I was like nine and I was so terrified that he who was the same age as me had to walk me back home to my mom who lives in an apartment building and so I couldn't spend the night there anymore I was like I need my mom I need my mom <laughs> so this poor nine year old had to walk me alone uh, walk over there and walk back alone and she was like why are you coming home and I was like I just love you I'm just homesick <laughs> And um, so, I, uh, I, when he, when they said Creepshow three, I was like, I didn't see Romero or King there. Like, I, and I, that was back in like the BC coming attractions age, where any movie that could potentially have a sequel was on the internet and would be like status of development. And I religiously looked at that and Anna Cole News, and I was like, I didn't hear anything about Creepshow three. And they were like, we're shooting at Universal. It's like, oh my God, that's amazing. Three months and in L.A. and I'm shooting at Universal. I got there and I had to, like a star wagon and it was blowing my mind. And then I saw the script and I was like, <laughs> this is not 
this isn't good. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and the, my favorite thing about that experience was that I was running around on, on the universal sets. So like I was running around where they shot the outside of Friends. Like I was climbing ladders outside and I was getting paid. Now I was getting paid like $100 to do that, but it still was getting paid. And, um, and it was an amazing experience. And I, and I was so stoked, but the tours were still coming through. And so yeah. I was wondering why we were shooting, like we were shooting this really serious sequence um, for my part. And we could only shoot once every six minutes. <laughs> and I was like, why? And so I went outside of the set where my apartment was, was the best little whorehouse in Texas set <laughs> that they had redone. Um, which, you know, growing up as a honky from Georgia was pretty cool. Um, <laughs> to be like, Dolly Parton was here, now I'm here. It's all, it's all happening. And, um, but I went out there to smoke a cigarette and I was in costume, which is a security guard guy, which I didn't make the correlation that like people coming through in the train would just see a security <laughs> guard. And so I'm standing out there smoking a cigarette, drinking a coffee, and, and the train would come through. And I realized the reason that we had to stop and could only shoot every six minutes was because we weren't a universal picture. They were leasing the studio lot, um, the studio space. And so they didn't shut down the, the, tours. the tours. And it's directly beside the Jaws ride. So oh, Jaws yeah. would scream yeah, every yeah. six minutes. <laughs> and it would ruin sound. So I was like, it's taking forever to shoot this one sequence. What the fuck am I doing wrong? And this train comes through, and it's a group of people, and you can hear him saying, and like, Upcoming new Universal Picture Creep Show Three, which it was not a Universal Picture at all, and um, I'm just like doing like the the like pageant like wave <laughs> thing, and like really full of myself, really proud of myself. And there's a kid in the back of it that had to be like eight, nine years, probably my daughter's age now. And he looks at me and he goes, you "Fucking loser!" <laughs> it keeps going, and I'm just like, <laughs> and I never went back down there. So the signal. The signal was did, the very next did, movie. Did, I was going to say, you sh- did you shoot that after Creep Show? Yeah. Yeah. Everything came after Creep Show. Okay. <laughs> all, all, all. And and this film was. You were telling me about. There's a little better. Everything. There's a little better. Everything that happened with this movie, and it's it's yeah. an amazing journey with this film. So tell us a little bit about it. Uh, so um, to, to actually, Creep Show Three is why is a big part of why that movie exists um, because. Um, my friends who I'd gone to, to university with um, were in Atlanta doing their own thing and I was in LA and um, Jacob visited me um, while we were shooting Creepshow 3 so he and my wife came to set and they saw him they, and they were blown away too because like I got to take him into my trailer it was like it was pretty fancy um, and they saw that and so when Jacob mistakenly thought that I was the lead of a universal picture um, and he's like wow he's out there three months and he's like he's and he told people in Atlanta, and they had a script. He and Bruckner, who just uh, I also went to college with, uh, Bruckner just directed the new Hellraiser. He did Nighthouse. He's phenomenal. Um, it's wild that these guys are finally getting some of the yeah. the uh, attention they deserve because I've known them since they were like eighteen and um, and and really grinding it out. Um, so they had this idea based on the parlor game Exquisite Corpse, where one director would write a third of a movie and hand it to another guy, and that guy would write the next part, and the rule was we couldn't defy each other. And so he and Dan Bush and, um, and Jacob wrote this thing. And, were, they all, were all of them at the same college? 
Dan wasn't because Dan's a hundred years old. Um, <laughs> so Dan Dan was a few years older than us, but they were all in Atlanta making shorts together. Yeah, and they would do a thing, you know, sort of like there were there were so many pubs, sort of like Lions Den, and then like once a month they would all come up here at the bar and they will have they would have shot a short film, so it would be like a night of shorts. It's a very punk rock DIY. We work on everybody's things and. And then they would show them, you know, like two, three hours of short films and everybody would get pissed drunk. So that's what they were doing in Atlanta. And um, they heard that I was the lead of a universal picture um, in Los Angeles. <laughs> and um, they told a guy that. Um, and that guy, would, based on his, like, they were like, we want to do this movie um, and we need $50,000 to do it. Um, we've got, they hadn't, they hadn't talked to me yet about it, but they were like, we've got the lead of Universal Studios Creepshow 3 playing our lead um, and the guy was like sure and he wrote a $50,000 check just one guy wrote a check and um, and that was after last and you made the whole movie on 50000 I mean I didn't but, but they you, but yeah okay yeah we did so what, but what, how we got amazing. that how and, we got that was because we spent we did what we called Signal Boot Camp we spent um, we shot it at the beginning of the new year and I went back <laughs> my dad's birthday so yeah I went back December 14th and um, we started shooting like the second week in January so that entire time we everybody that worked on the movie was in a house and we taped out we pre-blocked the entire movie and we had uh, tape painters tape in like four or five different houses and we'd figure out we knew before we shot the first thing how we wanted to accomplish every shot and not only that, we we workshopped the script for three and a half weeks. So by the wow, time that's a luxury, yeah. So we didn't have money, but we but had, had time. But we had time. Um, yeah. And so you know, I was crashing on on Jacob's living room floor for that entire shoot, and um, or Scott's Scott's floor, and um, we shot that. And back then, there was no film infrastructure in Atlanta, so everybody was really open to us doing it the guerrilla style that we do things. And because um, they didn't understand contract, they didn't know that you needed like you know releases for stuff, and so they were just like, "Yeah, sure, man, go and shoot right here. It's totally fine." And sometimes that naivety, if that's the right word, gets you so far. You know, yeah, it's like, we don't know all those rules. I mean, we we're, we're we not making it by those rules because we don't know that we shot, We're just going to do it. We shot the end of that movie in the Georgia World Congress Center, which is this huge, huge like series of buildings. They just didn't know that they could be paid for us to do that, so they let us shoot there. So we shot the end of the movie there. It looks like this huge train station because it's a huge station. Um, but they didn't um, they didn't know that they they should have been paid. Yeah. And uh, Tyler Perry corrected that for them by helping things blow up in Atlanta afterwards. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Atlanta, Georgia is massive now for. But yeah, yeah, and it's funny. It's like I moved from Atlanta so that I could make movies, and, and I made fifty <laughs> movies, and probably thirty five of them have been in Georgia yeah. and not from people that I necessarily know it's just like I find out that I'm going to keep shooting back when we did Sacrament I found I was I was a half a mile from my in-laws and I was so right. pissed because I was like you're supposed to shoot this, that movie in Hawaii and I was excited and then Ty was like Eli says we have to shoot it in Georgia and I was like fuck no why <laughs> Jonestown does not look like Georgia come on man um, but yeah we shot that movie in, a, in nine days we Nine did, days. We did one day of reshoot. Wow. Well, we were doing. We didn't know any better, and we were young and stupid, and so it's like I wasn't. None of us were in any unions. I wasn't in SAG yet, and so our average shoot days were twenty-one hours. 
So we would shoot between 17 to 20, 21 hours, and then we would drink for an hour, and we would sleep for two, and then we would get up and do it again. Um, this is rock and roll filmmaking. I don't know how we did that shit, but we did, and then we just sent it off to Sundance. Um, and I bet those guys like a hundred bucks a piece that it would get in because I'm an idiot. And, and um, I was like, it'll get, it'll totally get in. I didn't have a hundred dollars to give anybody, but it was just a bet and they sent it off and then it got in. And, um, and so again, it was another one of those experiences where it was like, oh shit, it all worked out. This is the easiest thing. You just make movies. It's easy. You go to Sundance and you get to hang out with famous people and everybody loves your shit. It's awesome. And then the movie came out. Amazing though that it got into Sundance. Yeah, we didn't know, you know for it. for you know film that you, especially you guys because, made in that kind of way. Especially because um, in my experience after that, like I used to always tell people that like just send your movie in, like if it's solid, someone will see it. Um, I got that kind of advice from a very famous actor when I was working at a Starbucks in New York City, starving post college, trying to be an actor. A very famous actor lived across the street, a huge movie star. And he came in every day. And Who was it? Well, he's a close personal friend, so I don't know if I should. <laughs> it was Matt Damon. Um, Matt Damon came in every morning at 6 a.m., and finally one morning I just like garbage-mouthed myself all over him and was like, I love you, and I have your choices, and blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry I sound like an asshole. And he talked to me every day. He'd come in every day and talk to me about, you know, like, what do you do, how do you do it? And um, his whole thing was just make work, keep putting it out, eventually someone will see it. And so that's kind of what happened with the signal, and um, and so I believed naively that that's how it could work, and it does, and sometimes. it did to a degree, and, and it, it did, and it, it did, and it does sometimes. But festivals, I know the film then got picked up by it, a big distributor, and well, there were several offers um, the night of the premiere, and we went with Magnolia Pictures, um, and so we they were starting a genre label called Magnet. And so they started it with us and um, another movie. I think Weirdsville was the other movie. Us and Weirdsville were their first were their first things on that label. But they, there wasn't a lot of infrastructure for getting a movie out, and VOD didn't exist yet either, which it would have gone straight to and it would have done well. But since we still had to fight theaters, yeah, um, we made I think what is it six hundred dollars, six hundred dollars total. For the box wow, from the, <laughs> for the release of the so we didn't even make our $50,000 budget back let alone when we made the movie we Im- immediately after premiering at Sundance got did sued they, by did they, not, did they not give it a good release or they they, they, they did their up. best but it opened on like 60 screens and, and, and it was my face was the poster at first so it's like no one gives a fuck about that guy like no one no one's gonna go see that shit and when they can go see Step Up to the streets you know? so they kicked the shit out of us that weekend. And, and it was only one weekend, I know, because I was saying last night, it's like I took my parents and my sisters to see that movie in Atlanta. I was so stoked. Said Signal, I walked in there, and we tried to buy tickets, and they were like, we don't, we don't have that movie playing here. And I was like, it's on the thing, I want to watch, I'm going to take my parents, it's opening weekend. And the manager of the theater came up to me and called me Lewis, and he was like, I'm so sorry, Lewis, we, we just had technical difficulty, we'll get it set up, it'll be fine. And, and um, that means that he saw the movie because that's my character's name in the movie. And basically what he was honest with me and what happened was that not one ticket was sold at that theater for that movie. Not one. So they pulled it and put up 
an additional screen of Step Up 2. <laughs> so, which is funny because later on, I did a movie with a star of one of the Step Up movies, and I gave her a shit ton of shit for that. <laughs> was Shawnee Vincent was Lily, and I was like, you can go fuck yourself. I hate fuck Step Up. So, House of the Devil, I, 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 was that the next movie you went on to? Um... No, I mean, I... Because sometimes the releases come later, yeah. and so... You know. It's the next one that, that did anything. Yeah. Um, and the reason that I did that was because we were touring so many festivals with The Signal, and you're meeting other filmmakers that also don't have money, that also are young, that also are hungry. So many of these people, you know, when you look at them, uh, you know, Ty West, well, you know, you see what he's doing now with X and Pearl and stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about House of the Devil because it's an awesome. I first saw that at a film festival uh, in Belgium, actually, and and it blew me away. I awesome. um, so I I the only reason I did that movie was because Ty and I became friends from. He had uh, Trigger Man, and we had the Signal, and we were going around, and we kept running into each other. We ran into each other in South by, running into each other in New York, and. We uh, we started hanging out in L.A. because we found out a lot of us filmmakers found out that we lived very close to each other in Los Angeles, but we didn't know each other because we were all from different parts of the country originally um, and didn't know anybody in L.A. And um, so Ty and I were hanging out at a bar one night, and he's like, hey, so there's this part in this movie that I'm doing, and I was going to be in it, but I don't think that the producers want me to. There's not going to be times so you think you might want to do it. You get to shoot a girl in the face. And, and I was like, okay. Um, and, I, and like I said, I grew up in such a religious household that when he told me that it was called House of the Devil and that I was playing a Satanist, I was so fucking stoked. Um, I ordered the Satanic Bible and because um, I, I was just couldn't wait to tell my mom that I, like got, a, I got a tax write-off by buying the Satanic Bible. And then I read it, and I was so disappointed because there weren't spells or anything. I was like, oh, it's just, a, it, it's not it's not black magic shit like I thought it was going to be. That's actually highly logical stuff in this book. It's very, it's very, frustra- it's very frustrating. I want it to That's the way you see it. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's normal. You should be a Satanist. Okay. It's all about personal responsibility. Um, so, yeah, so we went and did that in Connecticut, um, and it was wild to work with Mary and, and Tom, like I said, as somebody who actually is legitimately uh, grew up on horror, and that's all I ever wanted to do. So these people playing yeah, my parents was, yeah. was a trip. Um, yeah. and, and also being a fan already of, of Larry, of Fessenden, yes. um, and loving his work. And so that was an amazing experience to get to be around all that. Um, and see a little bit, it was a little bit bigger, but I think that was a million dollar budget. And seeing how all of that stuff worked um, was phenomenal. And also Ty, I just think to pound for pound, Ty is the best genre filmmaker working. And I think that he's been that for a long time. And I don't mean that in any disrespectful way towards anybody else. I just can tell you that on a movie of the size of his movies, there's usually like 40 or 50 crew members. None of them ever leave. They try to work on his movies and that is because everyone's treated with respect and decently. And if you and Ty is a director that is one of the only directors that I've worked with that if he and I disagree about something, I will do it the way that he said he wanted it done because I trust him enough to be like, I must be I'm there's a good chance I'm wrong about my instincts are wrong here on this. Because Ty's 
doesn't have any ego about, it's not about I want to get my way. He's come to a conclusion of what the best idea is for something, just thinking it through. And so there's none of his own, he's not bringing in any of his own insecurities or ego to it. And that really translates to the vibes on his sets that are just awesome. Like everybody wants to work with him again and keep working with him. Um, he's just, he's amazing. So, Hatchet 2, I've got a little story about the director, <laughs> and a little story, my story about Adam Green. Uh-huh. He came, I was at Fright Fest one year, and he came up to me and Not said, familiar with that place. No, we don't know. There's some other festival we don't know. Don't know, really know much about that place. Uh, he came up to me and said, uh, you haven't got any money, have you? I was like, why? He said, I haven't got any money to get home. I'm, I'm broke. And uh, I, I, can you lend me some money? I need, to, I, need to get, I need to get home. And I don't know how to get home. Can you lend me some home money? From, like home to America? I, mean, I don't know where he was going. I was going, I was going um, yeah, I think I got sidetracked. After that. And, and then I, I was thinking, well, what the fuck? I can give you a tenner or something. I mean, I, I yeah. So is that, is that Adam Green? Is that, um, that's my experience of it. So Adam, that, those guys... Bless them. Um, Adam called me, or Lynch called me, and said, Adam Green wants to call you. And I was like, okay. I'd never met him. Um, I had seen Hatchet, and I'd gone to the theaters to see Hatchet with Ty. Because when someone says, like, old school American horror, if someone, I know we've all got our own, like, some people it's the Chainsaw franchise, a lot of people it's Halloween or or Nightmare. Um, and for me, it's Friday the 13th. Um, and it always will be. And there's very specific reasons why that will be the case for me. So I'm somebody that, you know, like my porn is slashers and, um, and, or variations on that theme. Um, and so when someone has a poster that says old school American horror and it has Kane Hodder in it, I'm like, fuck yes. And I went and saw it and I was like, <laughs> I, I was not a fan of the first Hatchet film, um, which is really rude. Um, but I I was cornered by a couple of journalists at a bar in L.A. that Adam Green was at, and I did meet him then. And they were like, tell Adam what you think about Hatchet. And I was like, I think you seem like a really nice guy and a good filmmaker, and I think you're going to make some really good movies, but Hatchet isn't one of them. <laughs> I was drunk as fuck. And... Um, which is really rude and, sh- and a shitty thing to say because movies are impossible and uh, he's a good guy. And uh, so when he called me and asked me if I wanted to do Hatchet 2, I had to go to, <laughs> I, I had to, go to his office and, uh, and I thought I was being punked. Like I just was like, they're going to, Kane's going to come out of somewhere because like, I'm such a huge fan of Kane. Um, and um, again, it's like I think that Kane Hodder is a legitimate actor. Um, to do what he, there, you know, Jason wasn't really scary until he became Jason, and the reason is because suddenly there were human qualities to Jason that he did. The breathing, all of that stuff, is so hard to do in the makeup and in the effects that came, the practical stuff Kane has to wear. And then on top of it, just the just the pure simple idea of how much burn tissue he has, so it's it, it impedes movement. There's so much working against Kane for him to bring these fully realized performances that some people think is camp that I don't at all it took me years to convince Kane that I think that he's really that I'm like really a huge fan of his acting um, because he always took that as like somebody loved seeing Jason kill people um, but I sat down with Adam and he was like you want to do Hatchet 2 and I was like do you remember the conversation that we had mm-hmm. about the first Hatchet and he's like no and I was like okay yeah sure um, and uh and he told me who all was involved. So it's like Tom Holland, 
just the, I could go on and on. Obviously, Tony Todd, but the, when he told me that that Danny uh, Harris was going to be in it, taking over that role, um, we're the same age, and so as a kid, I would go to video stores, and when Halloween Four came out, um, I was exactly her age and seeing the trailers, and I just seeing a kid my age being like the lead of a horror film was mind blowing to me. And so, you know, I was like, absolutely. And he's like, you sure? Okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be having sex, doggy style. And then Kane's going to stand up behind you and chop your head off. And you're just going to keep fucking. <laughs> and I was like, sign me up. I can't wait to tell my mom about this. <laughs> so that's what happened. And we shot some of it in L.A. And then we all took a chartered flight. All of us. Like, so on a plane with Tony Todd and Kane Hodder and Tom Holland and Daniel Harris, it's all these people yeah. on a chartered flight to New Orleans and they put us up in the French Quarter and that was just like we would go into clubs and the dancers there would know Tony as Candyman so yeah. we could get in anywhere in New Orleans because we were with Candyman <laughs> and um, it was a wild experience I'm so glad that I did that when a lot of people, because a lot of the work that I've done is that nasty dirty word elevated horror that people have where they're like, it's serious, it's serious art, it's for thinkers. And um, and that's not what I grew up on. Um, and I, it was such an, an, a wonderful experience to be like, don't be a pretentious asshole. Like, there's audiences for, for everything. And also for me, selfishly, it was just an amazing experience to get to be making a movie with Jason Voorhees, with who I thought was the best Jason Voorhees. You know, and just like, getting to hang out with these people and, and getting to become friends with Danielle. It was so amazing. And, and that movie, like that was my first trip to Comic Con where we were all sitting down signing stuff and um, and it was a trip. I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was just funny because I would do, th I did that and then one month later I was in Missouri doing the next one which was my first Mumblecore movie which couldn't get any Horrible Way to Die? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we screened that. You should hear it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought it was a fright yeah. test. Yeah, we screened it yeah, as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. So that was, I think, that was the next one. Yeah. Good film. Thank you. Tell us a bit about that, because again, you know, another amazing director, Adam Wingard. Yeah, um, I, I had this sort of niche where I would work with uh, young filmmakers who would end up being extremely successful, um, and then they would go hire like legitimate actors for their <laughs> for their next for their big projects. Um, so Adam called me, and I didn't know who he was, because um, he was still living in Birmingham, Alabama at the time. And he'd made a movie called Homesick, I think, or Pop Skull. I think those were the, he had done two. I, I hadn't seen him, but I kind of knew Bill Mosley, and Mosley was in one of those movies. And um, they sent me the script for A Horrible Way to Die, and he also sent me um, a short film he'd made that was part of an anthology. And that anthology film never came out. Um, but it was called at the time, I got a DVD in the mail with Sharpie on it that said Date Rape, a movie in five parts. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? So I put it on and I watched his part of it. And I was blown away by the technical filmmaking of it. It was made for zero dollars. And, uh, and I couldn't believe like what I was watching. And at the same time, I got the script for A Horrible Way to Die and I read it and I hated it. Um, I didn't hate it in terms of like I think this is shit I was just like I will never I could never play a role like this I have a problem um, as an actor and it's probably an insecurity but I I don't want to hate any characters that I play um, and I look at what I do as um, kind of like defense lawyer 
especially if it's a character that is the bad guy or like a villain or some or very very messy does very bad things I uh, I sometimes think that it's my own personal insecurity with being disliked that I try to find an angle uh, of humanity for them uh, where it's a little bit harder to totally write them off where you could like maybe see where they were coming from and in the original script for that I played a serial killer in that and in the original script do you want me to answer? <laughs> oh, it's all right. um, I'll wrap it up. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm um, I, uh, the script, the guy would like really got off on hurting women, and um, or that's how I took it. And I didn't want to do that. And so I had this problem where I was like calling this film, this young filmmaker, and I was like, I do want to do your date rape movie. I don't want to do a horrible way to die because I just hate that character so much. So when I got on the phone with him. We started talking, and. Um, we just did a standard thing. You know, we talked about what was the last book that we had just read. And we had both just read the, um, the book that um, Ted Bundy's girlfriend had written. It had just come out about her time with Ted, and, um, which I guess is a pretty grim thing to find out that you both read recently. And we, we both read it, and we were talking about that. And he was like, so, man, you want to do this movie? And I was like, no. I, um, I want to do date rape, but I don't want to do A Horrible Way to Die. Uh, I, I can't see anything to do with it. I, th- I can't. The guy gets off on stabbing babies. Like, I'm not, I can't do that. Um, I just, I, I need a different actor. And he's like, well, we don't have to do that. What would you want to do? And I was like, what? Like, I didn't know what he was talking about. And then he told me that Amy Simons and Swanberg were attached to the movie. And I'm very close friends with Amy. And she hadn't told me anything about it. And I didn't know, I didn't, I'd never heard of Adam. So I was like, I didn't understand. I mean, like, she's like a sister. She used to live at our house when she was in LA. And, um, and so I was like, well, I would change the script entirely. And he's like, cool, well, we can do that. And I've never heard of anybody talking about that. And I was like, have you talked to the screenwriter about that? And um, he's like, he's cool, man. It's all good. And so I was like, let me call you back. And I called Amy. And I was like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, what is, like they're telling me this shit. And she's like, no, nah, it's fine. We're going to just, we're going to go out there and discover the movie. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, all right. Um, so we went to Columbia, Missouri, where Simon, the screenwriter, um, is from, and um, it was it, it profoundly it was, it was the most profound experience of changing me as a storyteller of anything that I worked on, because what ended up the movie ended up being was almost exactly Simon's script with none of the dialogue and none of the intent. I mean, some of the dialogue was there, but it's like, we, we would get dinner every night and talk about what we wanted to do. So, like, I was, um, I was struggling with, with alcoholism at the time, and I was aware, very aware that I was a drunk. And I, didn't, I desperately didn't want to be, but I also couldn't figure out how to stop. And so, when they, I, I thought that that might be an interesting take that I'd never seen somebody do with someone that had compulsive behavior because he's a serial killer. And so... In the script initially, he didn't have any sense of remorse about what he was doing. And I was like, but what if he does? What if like he does it? And since it was a low budget, there was a lot of, we would have to shoot post the violence. You know, like it would be the come down from it. And so we talked a lot about my experiences with drinking and, um, and about like, like, well, what if this is a person that's can't stop doing this but just wants to be caught and doesn't want to be this person just wants to like somebody to stop him 
and then it means it completely changes the concept of like he had to be so relieved that he went to prison because he can't hurt anybody there. And so that experience and that experimental like um, improv, which I had a background in, in improv comedy and like stand up comedy, but like I I had never applied it to this. Um, so taking that, so quite a different experience in terms of making a film in a almost abstract kind of way I mean without a yeah so I think I was telling you that it's like the first take melting would, pot the first take would be 10 minutes long obviously we're shooting digital but like the first take would be 10 minutes long because it would be a lot of talking and then and that'd be a lot of expositional dialogue about like well my character is saying this and that and then the next take would be 8 minutes and then we'd eventually get that down to like 45 seconds or a minute you just keep distilling it and, and, and did you guys just kind of improv dialogue yeah yeah a lot of it there was a scene in that where they, they had hired a local actor um, to show up in, in like at a gas station that my character's at pumping gas and he had specific dialogue he was supposed to say and he just didn't know any of it. He was an older gentleman and he would just start talking about stuff and in the movie that, I'm just being honest, that scene in that movie if you're able to find it, that is not the character of Garrett Terrell looking at him that's me being like what like I I completely stopped acting uh, I completely stopped and I was just like yeah okay and then eventually I just walked away from him and that's the scene in the movie you know Amy and I had I was so stressed out um, Amy and I had a sex scene in that movie which you know kissing your sister romantically is awkward at least for me I mean I have a hang up about it I'm not into incest that much not that much um, so I was really stressed out and I was like we need we need Irish whiskey here now and so Amy and I drank a bottle of Jameson and then we got into the making out stuff and I, she's really good friends with my wife and I was just like oh my god <laughs> 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 yeah, we've been doing this and when I saw them and Adam kept not calling cut and so I was like are we and the other thing that I heard was like these mumblecore guys you need to be careful because they fuck for real in these movies and that's what I, I for real that's, I heard that they actually have sex with each other in these sex scenes and so I was terrified you know, like a good Christian boy from the deep south, you know, that had recently embraced atheism. I was just like, I can't do that. I can't, I can't be fucking people on camera. Uh, God, what's going to happen? Um, and we were going at it, and it just kept going, and Adam wasn't calling cut, and we were about to reach a point of no return. And, and I stopped. I stopped. And I was like, ah, it's, I, think, I think we got it. <laughs> and then I saw the movie. And so the very beginning of that scene, I come in and I get on my knees and I take my jacket off and Amy and I, uh, we start kissing and that lasts 10 seconds and the camera just goes and it hits a Christmas light. And because Adam, that movie, the only lighting we had for that movie was one string of Christmas lights. For real. Godzilla versus Kong <laughs> brought one string of Christmas lights. But the entire scene, the, the lip smacking stuff, because we didn't shoot coverage. That was another thing that was new for me. It was just Christmas lights. So he put me through all that shit with Amy off camera. <laughs> like, I could have, we could have stopped. He just never called cut. He's like, no, it's good stuff, man. We're getting good stuff. But I loved it. I had such an amazing experience working with him and Simon and with Amy and Joe. It was and, and, life-changing. And, and you went on to work with him again. Yeah. But, the ne- but uh, one of the next film I just want to mention was Rights of Spring, because we also screened that film back in oh, 2011, maybe. It's a long time ago. Yeah. So I, I went directly from Missouri to Mississippi. 
two places that if you're in the states, you probably you can avoid. You don't need to go there, ever. Those are two states and, that and, you and, stay away from. And I think about rights to spring, you might want to say briefly because I've got a lot of films to talk about here. I'm sorry, I'm we're running out of time. <laughs> rights to spring. What, what do you? What do you? Well, how was that? I mean, different director. You hadn't worked with uh, Patrick before. So I hadn't, but Anessa, um, who was the other lead in that movie, was played my wife in The Signal. Okay. And so um, Patrick told me he called me while I was shooting a whole boy to die, and um, that movie was pr- the reason I said yes because I didn't know him and I and he didn't have a script to show me, so I said yes anyways. And the reason that I did was because the producer of that movie was Ty's manager, right, John Norris. And I, I don't think he's Ty's manager now, but he was then. He's a, he's a good film producer, um, and so Norris called me and was like, "I'm doing this movie for this uh, first time filmmaker," and I was like, "Sure, I'll, I'll be there." So it was crazy to go from like this super painful tone poem about addiction and trauma and PTSD to like you're running from a monster that eats people um, and it's really sweaty and hot outside. It was funny. It was good to get, so it was a Hatchet 2 to Horrible Way to Die and then Rites of Spring, which is a monster mashup movie. You're next. This is probably one that people are going to know. If they, uh... I'm not familiar with that film. <laughs> yeah. You're next. Was that a good experience? Uh, Adam again. Yeah, so we made it in the same town. We made it in Columbia, Missouri, exactly one year later. Uh, we took um, A Horrible Way to Die to Toronto Film Fest, and um, James Wan had Insidious there, and we all knew James. And the guys from our movie went to see Insidious uh, at the Midnighters and saw the audience reaction. It was just banger. And um, in our movie, A uh, Horrible Way to Die, when it got done, everyone just quietly filed out of the theater. There were no questions. Like nobody had any questions. Just everybody left, and nobody really wanted to look us in the eye after that. Now they liked the movie, but they were also really sad. And so Simon and Adam wanted to make something that people wouldn't get really depressed about. Um, so they decided they wanted to create something that could play midnight at a film festival that was a party movie that people could really enjoy. Yeah. And they were like, we have access to all these people that are filmmakers and they'll do it and so that's kind of how that happened and we shot almost entirely nighttime on your next so it was, it was a very subterranean crazy vibe um, and I felt really bad for Barbara and, um, and Rob who played my parents because Barbara just come out of retirement to do it Barbara Crumpton yeah and, um, and I was a big fan and of her. met her here at Grimfest a few years back. I was a, I was a big fan and I freaked out. Like, I ran away. Like, when I... Because I, I didn't know... She's formidable. She's fantastic. Well, I didn't know until we got there that she was playing my mom. There was a picture of her in the office and I was like, why is Barbara Crampton's picture on this wall? And I didn't think anyone would know who Barbara Crampton was because she hadn't done anything for yeah. quite some time. And I was like, why is Barbara's face on the wall by mine? She's your mom. And I was like, she's not my mom. Why is Barbara Crampton... <laughs> she's playing your mom. And... Um, and I freaked out. I fully freaked out. I called a cab, and I took the fuck off, and I went to a bar. Because like, they told me that she was on her way. And I was like, nope, I'm not going to meet that woman. I'm not going to meet her like this. This is not good. This is bad. And so me and Swanberg got hammered. And, um, and, and then she heard that that's where we were. She and Rob came to that bar. And I saw her come in the bar, and I went and hid in the bathroom. <laughs> this is a true story. She'll tell you this is a true story. And then I stayed in there for 45 minutes. She probably thought I was taking a poop, but like I stood in there for 45 minutes until I thought they were gone, and then I tried to sneak out, and they were not gone. And she chased me outside, and uh, she was like, "You're not, 
you're too old to be my son. And I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so, yeah, but the, there's a big dinner sequence Is in she, that. The woman never ages. No, she and no, they aged her up for that movie. They seriously spent a, a pretty significant amount of time making her look way older than she looked. Because she didn't look old enough to be anybody's mom in that. And um, there's a big dinner sequence in that movie. And basically in the script, it was like, by that time, half of us were very seasoned at improv. Um, and it was like, we're... This is the the dinner scene was I think one page in the script, but on the schedule it was two days of shooting, and because they were like this is the this is the mumblecore scene, like, this is where everyone everyone's going to be in the room together and we're just going to talk. And poor Rob and Barbara were not improv actors, and they didn't know how we worked, and so like I had to lean over and tell Sharni, who also wasn't an improv actor, I was like, look, everybody's just going to start running their mouths and they're not going to cut for a while. So, and then I had to tell Ty, who was acting in that movie, the first take, Ty ate everything on his plate. And I was like, don't do that. Don't eat any of the food. Just work at it. And he didn't know what to do, and he was nervous. And so, second take, he eats an entire full plate of food again. And, and then they're like, okay, we've got it. Now we're going to start going in for coverage. And I was like, that's what happens. Welcome to filmmaking, Ty. <laughs> By the way, what that means is you've got to eat all that shit every fucking take now. Good job. Um, but th- it was really stressful for the guys because like, it was just like there was a thing in it that said, AJ and Joe are going to have an argument. Like That was in the script. And, um, and we did. And we didn't know what we were going to be arguing about. And so all of that was improv. And some of the other actors didn't know what was going on. And so Rob actually tried to kick me out, like in the tick. He was like, he was like, Crispin, which is a really stupid character name. I have really stupid character names. But he was like, Crispin, get out of here. And I was like, Rob, it's AJ. I cannot leave the scene. I have to be here in the scene until Ty gets shot in the face with a bow there. And um, it was it was wild. It was a trip. And we knew that it was going to go to Toronto, but we didn't know. We did because I'd had like Signal and like House of the Devil. It was like moderately successful and and for people like us or it was it was successful so it was like i could go to a place and like my my people would know what it was but like your next was was on a billboard at, at sunset and vine you know like it was it was on the side of the buildings and stuff and i was yeah and so i i didn't i didn't have any any awareness that that's what was going to happen with it uh and then you worked with Ty again on Sacrament. Sacrament. Did that come after this? Directly after that? Not directly. Um, so um, your next, we shot in the spring of 2011, and um, we shot the Sacrament about a year and a half after that. Yeah, um, and that was the um, that's the best experience I've ever had making a movie. It's a Thanks great so. film. Thank you. Fantastic um, film. Everybody was so good at their job. Jade, who should have won an Oscar by now, is the production designer. She was also the production designer for House of the Devil. And, and a thing, if you guys have seen that movie, that you should know is that the house that we shot in, it, she was so. Jade Healy is the production designer. She's done movies like Green Knight. She did all of David Lowry's oh, films. Oh, wow, yeah. Um, she did uh, the live action Pete's Dragon. Um, she did I Tanya. So she's just bounced all over. And she did House of the Devil. And I was in that house for three weeks shooting. And it wasn't until the last night. Um, when they were shooting the very end of the movie and I was wrapped out and I was visiting set to watch Tom and uh, Jocelyn act um, that they were tearing up sets that they didn't need to use anymore and it was then that I learned that 
the kitchen is actually an extremely modern kitchen in that house. Jade had built walls over everything and built a false floor and built, there was like Viking equipment, like really high end, like refrigerator and stoves in there. And none of it, like it was so seamless that I slipped around in blood in that room and fell on the ground, like chasing Jocelyn. And I had no idea that none of it was real, none of it. And so when we shot the sacrament, there was this pig farm um, in Georgia, again, a half a mile from my in-laws. And uh, Jade went down there, and she took with her a ton of aerial shots of Jonestown. And any, any photography that she could get of, of, their, of their homes and what they looked like. And um, she put huge grids, uh, ceiling to floor, wall to wall, of that. And then she went out to this field and cleared it with her production team and started building cabins all over the place, pavilions all over the place. And because the nature of it was, a lot of people call that found footage. And again, like I was saying last night, it's like my, my job is to like collaborate on making the stories. My job is not to tell an audience what to think about it or what it is or isn't. I think that's arrogant. And I, I wouldn't, I'm not a fan of that. Um, but I know what our intent was. We knew that people were going to call it found footage. Our intent was if there's a non-comedy version of something that's called a mockumentary. Because we wanted to do a documentary and we specifically wanted to do Vice um, because then Vice wasn't what it is now. That was before the HBO show and they were still like a Vice guide to travel. And as a matter of fact, I had to make a tape for that to get clearance. So it wasn't technically an audition, but I had to make a Vice guide of my own um, to send off to Vice and to send off to Worldview so that they would be okay um, with me being the lead of the movie. Um, but because of the nature of it being a thing that's supposed to be a documentary, we couldn't have traditional coverage. And we couldn't have traditional setups either. We also knew that we were going to have 300 extras, um, 300 background actors. And so Ty needed to be able to go into any place at any time. We weren't sure where the interesting shit was going to happen. So everything had to be ready. All the and time. not only that, everything had to be practical. So all of those cabins had electricity. You know, like everything, so that the Jenny could be powered there if we needed to get over there. There was running water in most of them. And that didn't exist six weeks before we started shooting. So it was wow. this huge, huge camp. And it was really somber source material. But it also was the most fun. And I mean that literally. It's like I got to call my dad, who, um, who flew Huey helicopters um, in the Marines. And I got to call him and be like, I'm getting on... I'm getting in a helicopter today for the next two days. So it's like I didn't make a lot of money. I don't make a lot of money with what I do. But the payment was that I got to sit inside a Huey helicopter with the doors off and fly all over and watch Swanberg and Ken Tucker almost shit themselves because they were so scared. And I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> um, it, was, it was an amazing experience to, fly, to, to get to do everything on that movie. And um, when you're fortunate enough to get to make them, um, there's usually a bit of sadness at the end because you're like, oh, now I really know everybody. Now I'm really ready to do this the right way. And um, with that one, from day one, I was depressed because I was like, it's going to come to an end. Because everybody like behind camera, the crew was so amazing. Most of our crew had just shot Iron Man 3 and they came down from Charleston. And so it was just such a professional experience. And Gene, who deserved, I thought, awards consideration for his performance in that movie. He played father. Um, he came to town because the guy we had, it didn't work out. So we were already down there. And 
and Ty saw him on an episode of Louie, and he called. He got a hold of his management, who happened to be his wife. Gene's wife is his manager, and um, and he submitted a tape, and then came down the next day, and he and I rehearsed. There's this big interview scene in the movie, and and he was worried because he had heard that like, oh, these guys, they don't learn lines. They're just improv people. And I was like, I'm not those guys. I'm, I'm a double agent. It's funny. And um, so we got in, into my apartment down there, and we rehearsed the shit out of that interview scene. And rehearsed, rehearsed, rehearsed. And we also had that scheduled for two days. And Ty just wanted to do a rehearsal take. Let's do a rehearsal take, because since we're supposed to be using one camera, we're going to have to figure out where it falls apart, where we can cheat, like where we can cheat a cut. And um, we did the rehearsal take, and we did another rehearsal with the other camera that was supposed to be Swanberg's camera on it, or Kentucker's camera, and, um, and then we wrapped. So what's in the movie is the rehearsal takes, because Gene nailed it, and most of it's the first take. The only reason the second take even existed was to be able to see some of my coverage, which was basically me just like listening to him, being like, you're awesome. And it ended up in the film. That was that was it. We saved two days on that because Gene was so... Guys, do pipe up. If you want to ask a question while we're talking, just put your hand up and we'll, we'll shout out because um, I'm you know, more than happy for you guys to ask questions. Uh, the guest. I mean, this list goes on. <laughs> You've made a lot of movies. Well, but it's all the same people. You know, you're like, because they're like, oh, AJ will do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same. They called me and they were like, it's classic Simon Barrett. Um, because in A Horrible Way to Die, I improvised at the end of A Horrible Way to Die, improvised a monologue. Um, when I find my girlfriend tied up upside down, I come in and there's these guys that were trying to do this. Like, four, they were like real big fans of my work as a serial killer or some shit. And so I improvised a monologue that gave basically a bunch of exposition. That part was in the script about like, I broke out of prison because of this, why would I want to hurt her? Where it becomes clear that I'm not there to kill Sarah, I'm there to kill those guys for fucking with her. And that I was, and so I came up with the like, I'm happy stuff. It's a pretty pretty long monologue. So you're next, we're getting ready to do your next. And I was like, Simon, I just want to be super clear. Like it was, I've never heard of a writer being that cool with, with being loose with dialogue. So I'm gonna say every single thing that you wrote. Um, in your next and there he had written and, and I'm, so I'm reading your next and I'm like where did Crispin go? Because he's like <laughs> one of the leads of the movie and then he just pieces out and I'm like where the fuck did Crispin he literally is like I'll be right back and leaves <laughs> and I expected that to be like he goes outside and somebody chops his head off and I was like that doesn't happen and then I get to the end of the script and I'm like Crispin has like an eight eight to eleven page monologue where he explains the entire movie. So they were like, AJ learned AJ can learn dialogue. AJ has a photographic memory. So we're gonna explain the whole fucking movie in this one monologue. And so they did that. And so I was like, I have some thoughts. And so I added stuff to that monologue um, to try to make it funnier because I was or crazier. Because I was like, if we don't punch that in if we don't have people being like, oh, hell no, in the middle of the theater while, it's, while he's talking, like about shit like an engagement or whatever, then we've lost them. Um, he has to be absurd. 
so they shot the guest, and I wasn't involved at all. Um, and they got a cut together, and the producers were looking at it, and they're like, "Some of this stuff doesn't make sense. Like it needs it needs a little bit of explanation." And Simon was like, "Okay, I'll write a thing, and we'll get AJ to come in and explain that." Part of the <laughs> And that's that's a true story. Like that's for real what happened. They're like they went to do reshoots, and then this character shows up, and um, I was such. A, I, I look at some of the guests. Adam, Wingard. nobody knew it was me. I think I went uncredited, but also at that time I was like I got rid of my beard, and uh, which I don't normally have, and I reached a point where I was like I can't just be one thing. You can't chain me in like that. Like so, I didn't have a beard. Um, I had just done like a noir where I was like a sheriff, like like a, and uh, so I was all period up like that like 70s style for that and so they um i went in and they put glasses on me and they were like you're gonna do a walk and talk and you're, and talk you're gonna explain the stuff that doesn't make sense because right they, they didn't know how david got involved with with um with lance's stuff they didn't know how there was missing a connection piece there and they also loved lance and lance they wanted more stuff for lance reddick to do and if you guys ever get a chance to meet him please do he's amazing he's so amazing in fact that when we were shooting that the first take on the walk and talk um i was walking you know and he's talking to me and we hit our marks and he turns to look at me and i'm supposed to say something to him and i'm just looking at him and i'm like this motherfucker is so handsome he's so good Fringe is my favorite TV show. And I was just sitting there thinking these things to him while he's looking dead-eyeing me. And uh, right about then I realized that I, I'm, I'm supposed to talk, but I don't... Where are we? I was just like so enamored um, that he fucked his lines up because he was like... Because clearly there was someone that was in love with him right there. It was just like staring at him like <laughs> during the scene that was just like... And so they called cut, and, and Lance was like, why'd you fuck me up? And I was like, you're too fucking beautiful. You're uglier. So he was like, stop being so cool. I look up to you. I love you. Please be my best friend. And, um, and it was amazing. It was so brief on the guest, um, but it was amazing to get to, to do that um, and to get to, like, around that same time, I, I worked with um, Snoot again, but I, I got to, like, talk with Lance Reddick, and around the same time, I got to... I got to work with Leland Orser really briefly for Riley Stern's first movie, and it was that same group of people. And they were like, oh, just come in. AJ will do it. You don't have to even pay him. He'll just show up and improv, or he'll just do whatever you want, and then you can beat the shit out of him. It's fine. So, so next on my list is two movies that we screened, The Reconstruction of William's Era and Synchronicity, both kind of complex kind of movies with complex structures uh, and I love I, I like them very much both films and I'm glad we got to screen them uh, Dan Bush yeah. and Jacob Gentry again yeah um, how about those two films well, uh, well um, the, for Dan's movie was another one of those calls which was just like AJ will you just come here and, and um, come to Georgia and uh, we need a guy that's gonna be like a weirdo like walking around and, and that's a really simplistic way to say <laughs> he had like four lines and uh, I was like, well, what if we don't, what if there's a guy in the movie that doesn't talk at all? And that's me. What about that? And, um, and they were down with it. So he just kind of like was this creepy dude that walks around and then, and then dies. But I got to hang out with Melissa McBride. And that was a big one for me because I was such a, that was right when 
The Walking Dead was getting going, I think. But I was such a huge fan of The Mist. Um, at the time, I was like, The Mist is the best horror film of the past decade. I just, it blew my mind. Um, and I loved her brief work in it. I was a huge fan. So, do that. And the synchronicity, I mean, the character was named after me. Like, it's Chuck. My middle name is Charles. Um, and um, Scott knew that he was going to do that, and then he wanted me and Scott to do it. And they were doing, um, Pop Films was doing shows for uh, MTV. So they had all these sound stages, and it was downtime. So they were able to go in and do a whole science fiction movie. It's a great film. Thank you. Uh, okay. So I'm sorry I'm talking No, it's good. It's fantastic. I'm just thinking we're, we're running out of time already. We've got, got a load, a of, more, got a load more movies to talk about. Um, but I'm, I'm, I mean, all of these films, these later films we've screened at the festival, we've seen so many of your movies. Um, Satanic Panic, you were in. Uh, Night Drive, of course, that we screened last mm-hmm. year. Um, and Night Sky this year. So uh, what's next for you? <laughs> I, won't, I, I won't talk about this because you guys have seen, you probably have seen them and you, you probably heard AJ talk about uh, Night Sky yesterday. So, you know, we'll maybe skip over that um, a little bit. But So I did a movie a few years back called I Trapped the Devil. Yes. Um, in Wyoming, another, like, first-time filmmaker. Yep. And um, Scott and I worked on that. So basically it's like if I make a movie or if I produce a movie, the very next thing that happens is I start looking to see if there's a role for Scott Poitras because we... We, that's kind of our thing. You, you've um, become a lot more involved in the production side as well. Yeah, so it's... I During the pandemic, uh, when I was being pretty much just... Which is plenty. Just dad and husband. Um, I... Things had kind of slowed down for me professionally. We were in a valley. And um, I realized, you know, I'm not getting any younger. And I would keep seeing, you know, our team. We'd make something and then they would get to build their career as a result of it and and I was like I've always been a writer um, I've always been a producer and it's time for me to take some ownership over that because we all work on it all together and um, and I kept, kept shepherding these young filmmakers um, and I don't know why it wasn't like a it wasn't uh, calculated it was just it just ended up continuing to happen that way sort of mentoring younger filmmakers and um, and I got a lot of joy out of that but the other thing that happened, um, and my friend Drew knows this, is that um, during the pandemic, I reread Roger Corman's um, autobiography. And when the I. The guy is still alive and still look at it. Yeah, Drew knows him. Um, I, I, it, profoundly, it profoundly affected me living in the middle of nowhere where we moved right before the pandemic on the side of a mountain in the foothills of the Angeles Forest. Nobody there, um, quiet, and watching, having a huge fire going in the house. and and re-watching old stuff and then rereading a bunch of old stuff. And I reached a point where I was like, okay, well, now we're in middle age and um, what I'm going to do now is is basically I'm going to make my own shit because I know we know how to do everything. And so I'm not a big fan of waiting for someone to validate us with a check when it's like I know I'll just write a script that we can afford to do for nothing and because we know how to do that. And so that's kind of where things were. So I'm going to produce um, Josh's and Josh Lobo's next movie um, and it's going to have me and Scott in it. Um, and we're going to go back to Sheridan where we shot I Trapped the Devil. Um, I don't think I'm supposed to be telling anybody that. <laughs> Is there a camera back? Fuck. <laughs> we'll edit that bit out. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a secret, I think. Um, but um, I'm going to do that. I've been writing um, 
and um, I basically, you know, like part of the where the dream started for me was that when I was a kid, I went to scout camp in Georgia, and um, I was like nine years old, and I had wanted to be an astronaut, and then the Challenger exploded, and I saw that. And I was like, I don't want to be an astronaut. Um, but later on that year, a movie came out called Space Camp. And it's about kids going to space camp. And then they accidentally get shot into space, in the space shuttle. And at that age, I had this cor- a correlation happen for me where I was like, I can do a whole lot of things. Pretend I can pretend to do a whole lot of things and get a little bit, because I had a lot of interests. And... Um, by making movies. And right after that, I went to scout camp at a place that had had a movie shoot there the week before it had wrapped out, and that was Jason Lives. And um, it was Friday 6. And the, uh, the counselors at my camp were all running around in hockey masks, just scaring the fuck out of us. And right then, I was like, I wanna make, I wanna make horror movies. I wanna make, specifically, I wanna make those kind of horror movies. Um, and so it's sort of like, and, and, and I think I told you, but I had this experience coming here last year where I was, it sort of reminded me that like, what a, what a gift it is to like, get to go towards your dreams. If you're lucky enough to know what those are. And I was the, the only, the thing that I had going for me was I knew what I wanted. Um, I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to make movies. And it's such a privilege and a gift to be able to look up and go, I have. And um, my daughter's getting a little bit older now, and I'm like, yeah, it's time to get back into this. You know, like, it's time. My co-parent is in the genre, like, one of her grandparents is a very famous comic book author, and so she knows all this stuff. So getting to revisit some of these things now with an eight-year-old who I don't let see any of my movies. But when she's 16 and has girls over to the house, I will be putting on Hatchet 2. Um, I will I will put on Hatchet 2 so that she can see dad's, that all of her girlfriends can see dad's sex scene. But yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna direct my own stuff. I've been writing. Um, I mean, Rachel has some of my, Rachel has some of my writing. Um, but yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. So, listen, we've almost run out of time, but we have we've probably got a little bit of time. We've gone up longer than we should have done, but um, if anyone has a question, then now's your time to ask. You can also just tell me to fuck off. It's fine, I won't. <laughs> <laughs> just want to say I'm really fucking excited that somebody's making a second Josh Lobo movie because. I'm not telling anybody, it's a fucking secret. I don't know. But, like, that's like. It's like. I We shot it. Five and a half years ago, I looked over at Drew because when we did we did reshoots for that, and I was like, I'm not flying again to Wyoming. It takes like 12 hours to get to a place you can drive to in 12 hours, and so Drew and I, I was like, Drew, you've got to go with me. So instead, we drove all the way to Wyoming to shoot pickups for that, like a year after we shot it. So the pickups were like five years ago. Um, what? Yeah, but for everybody, I mean, realistically, I know that sounds like a long time ago, but there's been a three-year-long global pandemic. pandemic between, that happened. Yeah, but also, he's if you tell any, if you tweet, kid, because <laughs> I realize I really, this always happens, at least for me, and um, sometimes it's terrible to have like a best friend here. Uh, my friend is here with me um, because we'll walk away and I'll go, I fucked that up. <laughs> 
I did. I said some shit I wasn't supposed to. Was I offensive? I was. I said fuck too much. And then I was like, but I know that I'm going to regret that now, and I'm going to have to text Lobo and be like, I fucked up. Uh, so it's the it's the core. It's I don't. I haven't even seen the script yet. Um, he told me about it, and I was like, "Send me the script," and he won't until it's totally done. And I'm like, "I don't care." It's like I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna follow it anyways. I'm gonna do whatever I want. So just send it to me. Um, it's gonna be very different, um, but I'm stoked about it because it's me and Scott again, and and Lobo and, you and got, a couple. You, of guys. you guys obviously enjoy working together. Poitras, I allow him to work with me. <laughs> now he's. I mean, he's, did you guys see? Did it? Did. Did you guys? I know that I talked to some of you guys, but did you guys see Night Sky? Like, I one of the things that I was most excited about um, playing it here um, is because Scott's the best actor I've ever worked with, um, which is crazy because we were in high school together. Um, but a lot of times he's a he's that character utility actor that gets the job done, but doesn't get to like really go in and chew it up. And in what I wrote with that movie, Scott was not that character was not on the page what Scott was in the movie and that's all Scott and Scott crushed it and um, and so I'm a huge fan of his so any chance that I can get him in something um, where people can see him um, I was so excited to play Night Sky because he's, I just think that he's phenomenal in it. he's the most interesting person in the movie which pisses me off <laughs> it was a fantastic movie thank you and you mentioned Starman which I forgot about completely I always think of things like Sound of My Voice, which is also really micro-budget, isn't it? Yeah. Another Earth is shot on the Christmas board. Yeah. It's a great stuff. And My Origins, for example, you know, these things. And just this great ending. Where the mystery of Jules beyond the final shot is fantastic. Yeah, and I, like I was telling, um, I was telling Drew, um, those fuckers, the, the ink... You swore again. What? You swore again. The ink, that shit happened while I was out dying. Like, I didn't know. that. So the, when I went to look at the footage that night and we were all back in the RV, I was like, what did you guys, what did you guys do with Poitras' character? What is this? Why is he walking? Because that's not, it's so, much, it's so much more interesting that way. But it was a thing that they snuck past. Like, I didn't know that that's what was going to happen. I knew that we were going that direction, but then when I saw him come out and just go, I was like, oh, fuckers did it. So, yeah, he's awesome. Guys, give AJ a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know if you're sticking around, but we've still got a few more films to screen today. Uh, so. Probably not anymore because I talk too much. So. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was a good test. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you might want to go over to the cinema and check out the, the last couple of films. But uh, Thank you guys for sitting Thank around. Yeah. Thank Cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks, AJ. Are you grabbing awesome. your crotch? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> That's the effect you had on me. Just clutching. <laughs> Was turned towards me and clutched it. <laughs> <laughs>
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.